We are talking about Colossians, and so um, let's get right into it. Just as soon as everything fires up for some reason. Start off uh, on your phone, or if you have a hard copy Bible, but on your phone, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Colossians, it's in the New Testament. Paul writes this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about Jesus, of course. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Paul writing in uh, the church to Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. So we come uh, in this little series that we've been doing on Paul's little letters here in the New Testament, and we come to Paul's short little four-chapter letter to the church in Colossae in what we would now call, well, Asia Minor. And uh, just so you know, I think we have a map up here. I believe there's a map. Do we have it? Yeah. So here we are. Got my pointer. Uh, So here we are. Here's Philippi. Here's uh, Colossae, or Colossae, however you like to say it. Right here in the middle, here's Ephesus, here's Jerusalem down here, and so if you get yourself oriented, Rome and so forth. Last week we were working on Philippi, but right now we're here. So uh, just so you know, um, during the reign of Caesar Tiberius in 17 uh, AD um, in the common era, then there was an earthquake that pretty much destroyed Colossae and it was rebuilt, and then poor, poor Colossians. Uh, again, in about 60 AD, if I remember correctly, there was another earthquake which devastated the town, and they kind of built it back, and by the year 400, the town didn't exist anymore. So anyway, too bad uh, for that by far. So darn earthquakes, yes. So uh, Paul takes three major missionary journeys, and you can look it up on Wikipedia or anything like that, and he does not ever, during any of his three major missionary journeys, ever visit the town of Colossae. He does visit um, Ephesus, okay, right here, and close proximity, and um, so probably since Paul never got to this town, probably most likely the Ephesian Christians are the ones who came over and established a church or helped those Christians in Colossae kind of get going, get that church going. Of course, you realize this is all going on around 50 AD, okay? So... uh, Scholars suggest that the believers in Colossae came to faith through a man named Epaphras. Epaphras is referenced in this letter at least a couple of times. And uh, Epaphras, who most likely, like I said, came from Ephesus, where Paul, on his second and third journeys, had, of course, very troublesome time being imprisoned and beaten and so forth. And yet, the church in Ephesus thrives. And even today, you can see remnants of the original church. Uh, influence in that area. So um, Epaphras is the pastor in Colossae. And I must say, 
even though Paul never visited Colossae, nonetheless, he is fired up about this church. Um, it's just scholarly conjecture at this point, but perhaps Epaphras asked Paul to come over and help him with a growing problem, a potential heresy. And as you understand, with any young organization, there is a lot of vision confusion going on, and everybody's trying to take over and tell them somebody what to do. I'm sure you've probably been a part of some kind of organization like that. So what is this problem, this heresy? If we read the passage which we began, then we will hear this sort of thing. So um, if you kind of pick through it and bullet point it, Paul starts off there in the first chapter and he says, look, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him, right? He himself is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things to him, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. On and on and on. He's punching away this, this idea of like, look, Jesus is first. He's above all things in creation, outside of creation. He is, he's, he is it. He is the most powerful thing going, all right? The beginning. There's nothing between God and Jesus. There's nothing between Jesus and you. So if you're only hearing one side of this argument, what is the other side then claiming? So now you have to kind of do your little work here and say like, what's the other side? What was the problem? Because he doesn't list it, right? You get this through putting two and two together on this sort of thing. What is the problem? Paul is making a lot about the bigness of Jesus, how big Jesus is. He's first, he's over everything, image of God, etc., etc. The other side, therefore, must be saying, check me on this, the other side must be saying, Jesus is not the biggest thing going. There's something else in play. Some other entities, philosophies, demigods, angels, demons, who knows? But there's something where Jesus is not the biggest thing going, right? Isn't that kind of what we pick up from this whole thing? You can kind of track with this sort of deal. It's not too hard to figure out, okay? And, and sure enough, when you read the entire four chapters of the letter, you can piece together the heresy of a sorts. And in chapter two, it's especially important right here, and you'll kind of see what we're talking about. In the second chapter, um, Paul says this, verse eight, Colossians 2, eight. Watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. Then jump down to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. He's talking precisely then about the Roman Empire and the power of it, which if you lived in the Roman Empire, you would understand how powerful it is. Indeed. Verse 16. Therefore... Do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or of observing festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come. But the body belongs to Christ, the human body, your physical body. You get the drift here? Somebody is introducing the idea to the Colossians that they need some sort of ancient tradition before they get to Christ. And in this word, then, philosophy that's in the New Revised Standard, which I'm reading out of, really could get expanded, and it meant in that sense, back in the day, pick your word for it, but it would be some sort of old sort of tradition or ideology or something going on. 
particularly having something to do with asceticism. Fancy 10 cent word for asceticism would mean something that you do to, um, like fasting would be an ascetic practice. Um, keeping silence, right? Making various sacrifices. These are strictures. These are hardships on that you put on yourself in order to make yourself more holy or pure or something like that. Asceticism. Okay. It's not always a terrible thing. Uh, there are plenty of ascetic practices uh, that Christians have done over the years, such as fasting. Nonetheless, these things um, go on. They're introducing ancient taboos, whoever these people are that are infiltrating the Colossians, and about food, and drinks, and holy days, and rituals, and don't touch this, and do touch that, and all this sort of thing. Angels, maybe, like I said, maybe demigods. You've got to go through these things before you can get to Christ and God. That's probably what's going on, okay? But Paul is fired up and says, you don't need the false intermediaries between you and Christ and God. Jesus disarmed all these cosmic rulers and their authorities. In Jesus Christ, Colossians, you are free. You are free. Now, whether or not they were the Jews, like we were reading back in the Galatians, maybe, maybe not. Somewhere around um, 200 B.C., about 2,000 Jews were taken from Jerusalem and relocated into Colossae. So this is about, oh, 250 years. How many generations go by? 2,000 of them? Sure, there were Jews in that area. Are they the ones saying you've got to become Jewish like they did in Galatia? The text doesn't say, and scholars won't go there. They would just simply say it's probably something not so Jewish and it's just simply pagan because that's mostly what was uh, filling the church, they think. Okay? In Jesus, you are free. So here we go. Follow along then to Colossians chapter 3. So we've done chapter 1, chapter 2, not the whole thing, of course, but here we are at chapter 3. We're, and Paul, it's, the letters really builds a nice little argument. So here you go. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I think this may be the longest scripture I've ever read here in 25 years. So saddle up, okay? <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 1. So you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth, not on the things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's worth memorizing. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have stripped off the old self of this practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its, of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved and free, but Christ is all in all. I mean, at this point, you just say amen. Like, this is exactly where Christianity invades the public square and says, like, everyone, this is... It's good stuff. I'm just going to leave it there. Otherwise, it's a whole other message. Therefore, 
verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you, indeed you, were called in one body. And be thankful, for the word of Christ dwells in you richly. Teach, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, and psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is the sermon, right? You don't really need me. Just read that and close the book and be good. You know, that's what the Quakers do, by the way. Fired up. Can you feel it? You have been raised with Christ, Paul says. You are free. So, you know, if you read this wrong, you read a whole bunch of don't do this and don't do that. And you're like, well, Jude, Paul, you're like just saying the same thing you're accusing these people. But if you read it in the context where he's like playing the black keys and the white keys on the keyboard and he just is playing a cool song, he's floating back and forth between set your mind on things above. Christ is this. Therefore, behave like this. You don't need to to, uh, hold a grudge. You don't need to uh, um, hate. Everyone is equal. He puts it together. The behaviors go along with the belief. The old you is dead. You are now a new self, and there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved, and free, but Christ is all in all. Colossians, if you guys start putting intermediaries in, you start making distinctions, and now somebody's more special than somebody else because they behave better than you. And pretty soon you start getting into some sort of classism, and pretty soon Christianity just dissolves and falls apart. Maybe that's what Epaphras was worried about in his church. And so he brought in the big guns, Paul. <laughs> so bear up a complaint. Forgive as Christ forgives you and clothe, yourse- clothe yourselves in love and let your hearts be filled with peace. Better yet, how about just fill your heart with a song? And... What about us? What about us? Well, Lakeland, if you want to lift this out, stop filling your mind with all the voices that are out there these days about who's more special than somebody else and who's right and who's wrong. Okay, sidebar comment. Actually, all sermons are a sidebar comment. Um, Lakeland has, tends to think of itself as rather centrist politically. Like we try not to get into the fight, you know. I think we do a pretty good job. Maybe we don't. You judge me. Okay. Oh, wait. It says not to. But, um, <laughs> but we, try, we think centrist is cool because we just say, hey, we're all together. We're Christians. We just hang out together. You know, I don't care who you voted for or anything like that. You know, I might have an opinion about it around here, right? This is what we're all kind of thinking. But we're all here. 
because we think centrist is good. The downside of centrist, as we've been talking about for the last couple of months, you know what I mean by centrist, that we're all in the center. The downside of centrist is you don't know what you got. Uh, so it's kind of scary. So centrist, you know, the muddling middle, you know, you don't know what you have. We think centrist is really cool, but if you're on either end, you're like, hey, man, I don't know what you people are. And we're like, exactly. And they're like, yeah, well, I still don't know what you are. And that's kind of weird. But I will say this. At Lakeland, we value being together no matter what we think, precisely because of this scripture here and others like it all over the place. Talk about it amongst yourselves. Oh, wait, we're centrist, so I guess you won't talk about it. But um, try. My point is, what about us? Stop filling your mind with other voices. Stop filling your mind with news, just to name names, because everything's got a bias, right? We're all good postmoderns when we understand everything has a bias. Kansas City Stars, CNN, Fox News, Twitter, political websites, whatever things coming through your inbox like I get that use all these. I, I wish I should have been writing them down over the years like on a pad of paper. All the inflammatory words, you know what I'm saying? Like, there must be like a glossary out there you're supposed to use to write these political websites that have these trigger words, you know, that freak you out. You know, like urgent and cancel and deplorable and disinformation, disaster, conspiracy, your pants are on fire. I don't know what, but they come up with something to get you all fired up because you weren't a second ago, and then you read this junk, and then pretty soon, you're hating somebody. We have placed intermediaries between the purity of Jesus and our hearts. And the carnal world is calling us to hate somebody. And it's destroying us and eating us alive. And it's causing us to become bitter and then just hide away because we don't want to deal with anything. And in a word, for the third week in a row, we might as well call it a type of trauma because it makes you want to disappear. Clothe yourselves then with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Clothe yourselves with this. We are God's chosen people, holy and beloved. We are children of God. That is our first identity. Uh, you know, maybe you know it, maybe you don't, but I lead contemplative retreats. And uh, we separate them into generations. And the eighth generation of these retreats, a two-year retreat program, um, just wrapped up. We were up at Conception Abbey, a couple hours north. And we were talking about um, what we'd learned while sitting at the feet of Jesus, which doesn't look like sitting at the feet of Jesus, by the way, on retreat. But we do experience solitude and silence for a weekend. And, and I suggested, as we were trying to wrap things up and we're trying to take the monastery with us into our normal lives, right? I suggested, I said, you know what? I told the guys, I said, uh, you know, we, we need a second thought, a second thought. And I said, second thought. Mm -hmm. I said, so a second thought. You know what the first thought is when you're living life? It's this. Hey, jerk, who gave you permission to go swerving around out here like a bat out of hell and about running me off the road? That's your first thought. Right? Sorry, I assume so much about you. But the second thought is this. Maybe, just maybe, their child has been in an accident and, on their way to, and they're on their way to the emergency room. I would drive that way, just warning you. Maybe they're late for work, and if they show up late this time, they're fired. 
and they need the paycheck. And then your second thought says, I hope all's okay with them. I hope and pray they don't hurt anybody or hurt somebody else. And then you pray, and you pray for yourself that you're not a jerk driver also. First thought, and then comes the second thought. You're like, well, why don't we make the second thought the first thought? Because of human nature. Christian discipleship, then, is all about the second thought. It's about catching yourself. This is discipleship. You catch yourself, you know, and you, you, you rewind and then edit. That's discipleship. Fire up compassion, not the hot air of false voices that load up upon us. That's the Colossians' message. Secularism thinks Christianity is all over, and it's antiquated, and it's out of touch, and I really beg to differ precisely at this point. When we follow Jesus and Jesus alone, we are the hope of the world, precisely because of this. Surround yourself with good people, good Jesus imitators. Get yourself in with the right kind of folk who are people of the second thought, who, who choose to love and forgive and be at peace. We, we can't escape the voice of the world, right? But we don't have to obey it. Haters are going to hate. Judges are going to judge. But we are Christians. And those people of the second thought, the people of the good shepherd, you know, Psalm 23, we don't need to want. We don't, we, we need, we just rest. We walk through the world one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, with our eyes upon Jesus. And our world ends up being a perfectly safe place, in the words of Dallas Willard. The world is a perfectly safe place. And you say, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Walk with Jesus the way Paul tells the Corinthians to walk. Lie down, be free, be at rest. Amen.